The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. So this morning we're going we're gonna to continue in the book of Luke and uh, we're going to read the passage together and then we're just going to ask for God's, God's guidance on it. So um, Luke chapter 9 and beginning in verse 28 says this, Now, about eight days after these sayings, and if you remember, Jacob uh, shared last week on these sayings, like taking up your cross and following Jesus. About eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men stood with him, and, and, the, two, and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And, he was, and as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid, and the, and, uh, they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and he kept silent, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for this morning, and we're thankful for um, just these, uh, this incredible story, this incredible account of what happened on this mountain. And God, as we look this morning as to uh, what it tells us about your story, and what it tells us about uh, your authority uh, as Jesus' authority to, to speak to us. I pray that you help us to unpack it and understand it and apply it to our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So if any of you are um, fans of a good heist movie like myself, um, I've uh, seen a number of them. And uh, I have to say, like, my favorite one, one of my favorite ones has to be uh, Ocean's Eleven. So uh, and if, uh, when I say Ocean's Eleven, there's like a 1950s one. I'm talking about the remake from like the early 2000s, the Ocean's Eleven with uh, George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, that whole star-studded cast that just... Uh, they just seemed like they made that movie just to be fun, like just a group of friends making a movie together. Uh, and, uh, but if you've seen the movie, there's actually this one point in, in particular that I always think about. And uh, it's when <clears throat> Brad Pitt's character is giving Matt Damon's character some advice on, on how to pull off this heist. And in, in the scene, uh, Matt Damon is this rookie. He's a brand new uh, heister. I don't know what the official term is. I'm not a heister, as you can see. Um, but, uh, but he's giving Matt Damon this advice. And so he starts rattling off his advice. He's like, hey, don't look down. They know you're lying. Don't look up. They know you don't know the truth. Don't shift your weight. You look like you're shady, right? Don't touch your tie. It looks like you're unconfident. And so the whole time, he's rattling off all these things. And the scene kind of ends with uh, Brad Pitt's character says, saying, by all means, under no circumstances, should you ever, and then right at that moment, somebody calls him out of the room, and he leaves Matt Damon fumbling over 
wait, what were you going to say? Like, that seemed like pretty important information. And so there's this moment where Matt Damon's kind of like, like clueless about what, what he was going to say. And as I think about that scene, right, like there's this veteran, right, this person who knows the ins and outs of his trade, Matt, uh, played by Brad Pitt. And then there's Matt Damon, this newbie who's hanging on every single word that, that Brad Pitt has to share with him. It makes me think about, like, you know, important information, right? Like, who, who are we listening to? And this morning, our, really, our main point uh, is, is this call to action that God gives uh, to James, uh, Peter, James, and uh, John, who are on this mountain, that Jesus is this one that we should be listening to. That, uh, that, and so our main point this morning is really answering that question, how are we, do we listen to Jesus and his old story? And so we're going to do that three ways. So uh, in classic format of like uh, different types of stories, our points this morning uh, are, are just that. So we're going to have uh, three points, and I'll, we'll go through them, of course. But uh, one is that we're going to look at the tale of two men, right? Moses and Elijah up on this mountain with Jesus, this uh, a tale of two men. We're going to take the lessons from that. Uh, we're also going to look at a, uh, an account of an ambitious disciple. So we're going to look at uh, Peter's response to this incredible scene. And then finally, we're going to wrap it up with uh, what lesson is there to be learned? Uh, what is the lesson that's going to be learned from this whole scenario, from this whole scene? So with that being said, we'll jump right in. So um, this uh, first part of the account of the tale of two men... And that's verses 28 through 31, and I'll read those here. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. So... Off of the first bat, when we like look at this story, when we look at this account that uh, is being recorded by Luke, it's really this bizarre scenario, right? If you think back on like what Jesus has accomplished so far in his ministry, we have categories for all of that. So you have categories of uh, healing, right? Like you have like somebody who was sick, they wanted to be better, so they became better. You have a category for um, for somebody who had, Jesus had raised the dead, right? This person was dead, but they wanted him alive, and Jesus graciously brought this person back to life. Um, and we have uh, stories of people who are paralyzed, right? That, that their bodies were not functioning the way that they were meant to, and Jesus graciously healed them, right? And made them operate the way they were. But then we get to this story of the transfiguration, and there's this, like, we, we can see what's happening, but there's a level of, like, I don't have a category for why this is happening, and, and so uh, what's really helpful in some of the things that you may have already picked up from this passage are the very things that are meant to be um, understood or thought about. And, uh, and so as we think about it, right, uh, you see these two men, right, Moses and Elijah. It's worth camping out here for a second to think about these two men in particular, because it could have been anybody, right? Why not David or, um, you know, or any of his sons that were king, right? Why didn't they show up with with Jesus on this mountaintop. Um, and to kind of put it simply, right, this is a very big reduction of who these two people are, but uh, in, in, a, in some way, you have Moses, 
who was the lawgiver, right? He was the, the person who was this mediator between God's people and, and God himself. And he brought down uh, the, the commandments from the top of this mountain, right? And so you have Moses, who's the lawgiver, who also wrote all of their cer ceremonial laws and their civil laws, right? He gave all of that to them uh, as he was directed by God. So you have Moses, who's kind of like this figurehead for the law. Well, then you also have Elijah, and Elijah was a similar figurehead, but in this case of the prophets. Because if you think back, um, if you're familiar with your Bibles, or maybe you're new to the Bible, but um, Elijah's story um, is a, he's a prophet, this bold prophet who's just continuously speaking out against the powers of that time who were corrupted, and just continually bringing, bringing, uh, bringing up all of the faults of uh, the leadership at that time and speaking on behalf of God and confronting, right? So you have Elijah who was this figurehead for the prophets. So with these two men standing before Jesus, you have both the law and the prophets represented, uh, which um, is often the shorthand for all of God's teaching throughout up to that point. And you have these two men who are kind of like with Jesus, the, the spearheads of both of those components, the law and the prophets. Another uh, interesting component is both of their accounts of their, their deaths. Um, this would also raise these people to this uh, almost epic figurehead status was uh, first off uh, Moses uh, in Deuteronomy, we actually see that uh, in Moses' lifetime, when, uh, after his lifetime, when he had passed, it's actually recorded that God himself buried Moses. So you have this scenario where God actually has this like private memorial service for Moses. And so there's some shroud of like uh, epic uh, proportions about his life uh, and death. And then Elijah, uh, in a similar way, Elijah, we don't even have an account of his death. Elijah is literally taken up to heaven in the presence of God. And both of these scenarios would have and did, in fact, in their culture, raise both of these men to these, um, this, this uh, legendary status in their culture and in their time. So why do I bring all of that up, right? So you have all of this, uh, these important things. Uh, you know, obviously these two people are very impactful and important to the, to the readers of the time. Well, it's interesting because Luke, for the rest of this passage, uses a similar framework that we've seen him use earlier, earlier in the book, uh, where he names them one time to let the reader know we are talking about Moses and Elijah, and then the rest of the passage, these men are referred to just that, two men. The rest of the time, it's Jesus and two men. It's obvious that the spotlight has moved away from these two epic men, right, to, to Jesus. The spotlight is on Jesus, our Lord. And so we think about, again, some of these things that we're seeing in this passage um, and some of the noteworthy things that you've probably seen already, right? Like um, this glorified Jesus, um, the fact that they're up on this mountaintop to pray, uh, that these two men are with them, right? Um, and I think, or well, and it's clear that Luke is including these details for an important reason. He's drawing our attention to something. Um, and so I actually um, have kind of put uh, in a little chart here, if uh, we can throw that up, 
Um, just a, a quick comparison of these two scenarios. Um, I'll explain more about the word Exodus there. I've used that in a particular way, but, um, but the, the story here with Jesus parallels pretty closely some events in the book of Exodus um, that take place. Namely, one, that the, this scenario takes place on a mountaintop. All right, so already it's like an important, an important location. And it's pointing out uh, a similar experience where uh, Moses actually climbs a mountaintop and is in the presence of God. Uh, and that takes place in Exodus 24, uh, chapter 12. We see also a particular note of Jesus' face being transformed uh, in verse 29. And uh, Moses' face, uh, after he comes down from the mountain, uh, is also have, has this appearance that has been changed. Uh, thirdly, we'll see that uh, there's this cloud covering. We'll see it a little bit later in the passage, but there's this cloud which represents this presence of God in the scenario. And that also takes place in this moment when Moses goes to the top of the mountain uh, with, uh, in the book of Exodus. And then finally, the voice of God, um, that voice of God speaking from the cloud, also a scenario that happens in the book of Exodus. So I've laid those out so you can kind of see Obviously, as we read this, our mind is meant to point us to something else, something else that had happened. Jesus being here isn't by accident, right? It's not just some really cool magic trick that he did, right? Like he's here uh, with a mission in mind. And so as we look at those comparisons, the kind of nail in the coffin, so to speak, for the argument for these two comparisons actually is the conversation that Jesus has with Moses and Elijah, which, just to pause and think about how radical that is, that like Peter, who had never seen Moses or, uh, or Elijah in his lifetime, is here seeing them in person all of a sudden. And not only that, but they're having this conversation. He like picks up and he's like eavesdropping on like what they're talking about. It's just this uh, very interesting moment. And, uh, but it says, it tells us what they're talking about. It says, verse 30, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now that word departure is really kind of where I want to hone our focus in for a moment. Uh, that word departure actually is the same word for the word exodus. So here, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are all sitting here talking about this big plan that's going to be taking place. And that plan is this exodus, this movement of Jesus out. And that is what we're going to be seeing, and we're actually kind of witnessing it now here in the book, uh, book of Luke in chapter 9 going forward. There's this transition that's taking place where we'll see it in the following passages uh, in later weeks, but we'll see that actually Jesus is turning and he's actually setting his face towards Jerusalem. Now, that's shorthand that we're going to see a few times, but in Jerusalem, we know that Jesus goes up and he's up on top of another mountain, and that time is crucified uh, for us. And so Jesus has set, is setting his face towards Jerusalem. This is that slow transition towards it, uh, his exodus. Now, why, why is that important? Why is the word exodus important here? And again, as we think about what Luke is trying to get us to call our minds to, let we think back on what was accomplished at Exodus. We think back to God's uh, magnificent story of 
uh, and just if I can summarize it here in like 30 seconds as best as I can, you have a people who God hears their cry. He hears their suffering of being enslaved. Uh, they're under uh, oppression and they cry out for help and God hears that cry and goes uh, above and beyond to take these people out from a land that is not their own in Egypt to save them from that, deliver them by his mighty hand and move them towards a land of their own that God is going to give them, their own personal land that God will be their king and, God will, and they will be his people. And so with all of that drawn into our mind, we see, and again, if we think about the main theme of the book of Luke, his kingdom come, we're watching as Jesus does the same thing. He's moving towards his exodus that we're invited along with, as we saw in the last week's passage, right? Taking up your cross and following him. We're also invited in this exodus, this liberation. And so, uh, obviously, there's some pretty dramatic things happening here, and, and we're seeing that all kind of unfold. As we think through, um, think through that, and we see these realities, the question then becomes, so what does our response become, right? Like, what, what do we learn? We've seen this story of these two men and how it, how it lays out uh, this argument for listening to Jesus in particular. What's our response to it? And that leads us to our next point here, an account of an ambitious disciple. Um, and we're going to follow along on Peter's story here in just a moment. I'll read it for us. Actually, let's read that now. Uh, verse 32 and 33 says, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as these men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. So we're going to take a look at this, right, this scenario in particular about Peter's reaction to the presence of these three people and these three men. And, uh, and, and, we're going to see that his response was actually inappropriate for it, and we'll explain a little bit more why. Because it does actually uh, have an appearance of nobility, that he's, he's trying to do something that's noble, but we'll explain why that little caption there is like he didn't know what he was saying was actually added by Luke. Um, but let's just pause for a second and um, just like, you know, just kudos to Peter, right? Like, you know, this isn't like a, a viral video that like, um, you know, he just made a foible and like a couple million people saw it. Like he, like Peter, like in almost every case, like when he opens his mouth, inserts his foot. And like, that's not, he's not just like recorded like once for a video. Like it's like eternal scripture. Like we're going to be learning this lesson for the rest of eternity. Right. And, uh, and so, you know, it could have been any of us. So I'm just thankful that Peter was the one uh, who took the fall for us and kind of was our representative mistaken head. Um, and so that being said, um, you know, we'll, we'll explore this a little bit more, but I just always think it's funny when we stop to pause to learn from Peter. Um, but we'll find that we're not actually too far off from our friend anyway. Um, and so we think about Peter's response. Again, at first glance, this can be like a faithful and good response. It looks like he's like being, he's being, uh, you know, energetic and, and excited for the Lord. Um, but we'll see in a couple, re a couple reasons why um, the, uh, this was an uh, inappropriate response. 
Um, first, it's noteworthy to, to kind of mention where this is taking place, too, because it can add a little bit of color to Peter's reaction. Um, and then also some other events that take place a little bit later in the book of Luke. Um, but in this, in this moment, they're actually on this uh, Mount Hermon. Um, so there's a couple mountains he could be on. One of the potential mountains is Mount Hermon. And uh, in, this, in that scenario, if it were Mount Hermon, which is a higher mountain than, uh, than the other alternative, and not only that, but like um, uh, in Matthew's account, it's described as a high mountain, so it likely is talking about uh, Mount Hermon here. Um, this mountain was also kind of the center point of a bunch of different religions and a bunch of different worship locations. So, um, so there were actually a number of different gods who had their own temples set up here um, at, the, at the base of this mountain. And if that's the case, if that's the location where this is taking place, Peter's response is kind of like combative towards that, right? Like, hey, like, you know, all these other temples exist, right? Like, let me set up a tent for you. Um, let me set up uh, the, a place for your dwelling, right? And so, so again, to kind of add a little bit of context to why Peter may be saying that, um, that's an uh, important concept to just kind of note. Um, but that being said, it is, uh, it is still kind of mentioned here that it, it's a shortcoming. And the reason being, there's a couple implications here. Uh, one, uh, so the implication is that this is happening as these men are leaving, right? So it's almost as if like, it's implied that Peter is like, doing everything he can to try to keep these men to stay with him. Uh, because tents in that time were both a place of worship, but also what's considered a place of dwelling, right? Where uh, a god would come and dwell and stay and also be worshipped and served. And so in Peter's scenario here, he's trying as hard as he can to try to give them a place to stay. Like, hey, don't go. Let's stay here. Let's camp out here. Which is noteworthy because we're going to see that this is a little bit of a theme through the rest of this chapter, with Jesus, as I mentioned, he's slowly turning his face towards Jerusalem. His mission is becoming that ascension, that moving towards, uh, moving towards um, Jerusalem for his sacrificial crucifixion. Um, you're gonna, we're going to see that on a number of points, the disciples, in fact, are uh, inhibiting his journey there. And that we'll see that there's a couple times that this is going to be a theme where they're going to try, try to stop him, try to keep him uh, from moving that direction, unintentionally, of course, because of their ignorance. And so Peter here is trying to get them to stay. He's trying to find a place to have them camp. Second thing, uh, and a little bit more obvious, is that these are locations of worship. And so there, there's this element where he's uh, putting the, these three men on the same level, like they're on par with one another, and they should each get their own tent of dwelling uh, and a place to stay. And so there's some ignorance also in, Jesus, in, in, uh, in Peter's comments there as well. Um, but again, I don't want us to come here to just rag on Peter and move on because there is a kernel of what Peter's doing there that I think can be an example. Uh, it's an account that we can learn from as well. Um, and I think when I, look, when I look at what Peter's doing here and I ask myself, why, why is he trying to do this? Like what, what maybe are some of the motivations for him wanting to create this place to, to stop and pause? And my mind, my, my mind and my heart go to, um, it seems to me that this is a place where Peter is comfortable right? 
um, you have this moment where uh, he, he's kind of in, in the bread and butter of what he believes. These men are the people he has studied, he, you know, he's, uh, he's revered his entire life, and now they're in front of him. Uh, Jesus is glorified, and so there's this magnificent moment. And to be honest, down at the bottom of the mountain, it's a little messy. If we look at uh, all the things that they've been going through up to that point, right, with the healings, uh, just recently the, the feeding of the, the 5,000, right, when uh, the disciples tried to send the people away. Uh, I think back to times when the children come and interrupt their conversations of te- Jesus' teaching or the company that Jesus is keeping at dinner that is making Peter uncomfortable in his life, right? None of that is up here on the mountaintop. And so there's a level where Peter is wanting to pause and camp where he's comfortable. Hey, let me build you a place of dwelling. Let me build you a place where we can stay. And I see a lot of myself in that story. And I think we can see a lot of ourselves in that story, right? Uh, maybe not in the particulars that, that Peter is, right? But, but in the ways that we recognize that, like, there are things about our faith that make us uncomfortable, that maybe we're less willing to, to uh, explore because of the comfort level that we experience with where we're at, right? Um, you know, like personally, like, you know, I think about it from like my, my perspective, right? Like, you know, what, like it sounds a little bit nicer for me to spend an evening in and just like sitting on my couch reading rather than inviting people over some nights, right? Now, there's a balance there, right? But, but what I mean to say is like, there can be a level of like, hey, like there are messy things that I don't want to introduce into my life uh, but maybe, right, I should explore, like, is this coming from a place of comfort or wisdom, right? And so this week, as we meet with our community groups, I thought a helpful question is, like, what, what areas of your faith make you uncomfortable, right? Where, where are some of those areas that we can identify, like, maybe where God wants us to move, come down the mountain, so to speak, uh, and move towards the messy, right? So... We've paused now. We looked at um, Peter's example for us. And so as we look at uh, that account and think about it, now for a little bit of good news, right? We've looked at Peter's, Peter's story there. Um, let's wrap up this, this passage, and then I have some other thoughts um, elsewhere as well that are worth looking at. Um, so we're going to lastly look at this lesson to learn. And that's verses 34 and 36, or through 36. Uh, 34 says, As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid and, and as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days of, any, of what they had seen. And so now we have uh, the kind of climactic finale of this scenario. The two men are departing. This cloud is overshadowing them. This voice of God is speaking out from the cloud. There's fear in all of this situation as well with the men. Um, and, uh, and so all of this takes place almost in an interruption to what, Jesus, oh, to what Peter is saying, right? Peter's in the process of explaining his pro- plan to build these tents, and, and then God speaks out of this cloud and uh, says, this is my chosen one. Listen to him. 
It's worth noting that, uh, again, as I mentioned, we're kind of in this pivotal moment that's taking place in Luke where the, the scene is starting to change. It, and this actually works almost like a bookend to Jesus' public ministry. So you had uh, Jesus' public ministry that started with his baptism earlier in the book of Luke. And in that scenario, um, you had uh, uh, Jesus get baptized and God's voice come from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And now here towards the end, this kind of Jesus will continue to have ministry, we'll see, um, and continue to heal as he goes. But as he's again setting his journey towards the somber trek towards Jerusalem, um, this works almost like a bookend to that portion of Luke's narrative. Um, and it's worth noting that all, that all the, the Gospels, apart from John, uh, have the same kind of format. And so this voice comes from heaven and says, uh, this is my chosen, you should listen to him. And that, I think, is one of the things that makes this so interesting is uh, as opposed to his, the voice that happened at his baptism, here God ends with this call to action, right? It's not just, this is my beloved son, you, like, you know, I'm well pleased with him. In this scenario, there's actually, an, there's actually a command that comes with it, and it says, listen to him. And so that, that term, listening to him, listening to Jesus, it's impactful for a particular reason. Um, and uh, that reason is that, uh, that it actually comes as a fulfillment of prophecy as well. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses says this. He says, The Lord your God will raise for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen it is to him you shall listen, Deuteronomy 18. And so Moses uh, prophesies in this moment uh, back in Deuteronomy uh, that there will be a prophet who's going to come after me. And what should you do with this prophet? You should listen to him. And here, after having just had this conversation with Moses, you have this moment where God says, this is my chosen one, my chosen one, the Messiah. Listen to him. This is the great prophet that they've been waiting for. It's all been leading up to this very moment. So we're left with the question then, right? Like, so for them, you know, Jesus walking with them, talking with them every day, like, it's pretty obvious. Listen to him like he's walking about and uh, spending every day with them. Like, you should listen to Jesus. That, that makes sense. But we're left with the question here now is what does it look like for us to listen to Jesus in our day-to-day -day lives, right, as we go. Now, it shouldn't come as any surprise as a person who has scripture alone tattooed on his arm uh, in Latin uh, that I'm going to say that we should listen to the Bible, right? We should listen to it. Um, and so that shouldn't shock anybody that it, uh, th that's where I'm going with this. But that being said, you don't have to take my word or my arm's word for it. We can actually see what Peter says himself. Um, and uh, this uh, is a little bit of a um, a little bit of a sub-redemption story for Peter because it's actually Peter himself who, who comments on this scenario. Uh, and that takes place actually in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. So you can turn in your Bibles. I will also have it on the screen there as well. But, um, but 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter actually is commenting on this very thing. So in his... Uh, in his discourse on, you know, why he should be listened to, right? Like, and what, what authority Peter has to be able to speak to, to his readers. 
in, the, in this passage. In uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Peter writes this for us all to read. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter is commenting on this very event that took place in his life, right? So while Jesus walked with them, he remained silent about that. But uh, once Jesus uh, had died, rose again, had been ascended to heaven, uh, at that point, Peter, um, you know, comments on these things. And so what is Peter's application, right? We're going to read that in a second. But what is Peter's application of his experience on this holy mountain, seeing Jesus face to face in his glory? He says, verse 19, and we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do, good, do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So a whole sermon could be obviously preached on this passage alone, but um, for our purposes here, I wanted to, uh, to point out, one, that, yeah, Jesus, that Peter here is commenting on the very event. And P Peter's um, application of that event is actually this. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to you, which you would do well to pay attention to. And he, here he's talking about the scriptures, right? The, at that time, you know, what they had up to that point were some of the letters being passed around, the law and the prophets, uh, as we read about before, right? Um, you have those writings as well. And so Peter's application is this kind of astounding application that these words are more fully confirmed than his experience of seeing Jesus on this mountaintop. And we can tend to, like, want to see those things, right? And it makes sense. Like, they sound awesome, right? We see these moments of Jesus transfigured, right? And someday knowing that someday we'll see Jesus face to face again in eternity. There's glory in that, right? But Peter here is actually making the argument that the words that we have on these pages are, in fact, the, the words that uh, are more, more trustworthy in, to, uh, to say it one way. Now, to, to kind of clarify a little bit, right, what I'm not saying, right, is that these books that we hold in our hands are in some format, like some holy, like, you know, item that we carry with us, right? Like, the, because to be true, like, the printing press wasn't even invented for the last, like, 550 years. So prior to that, it really was just sitting and listening to God's word being spoken, right? But it would, and, and another point that I'd like to make as well, that the Bible doesn't actually like set itself out to be the best of any one thing, uh, which is an important thing to realize, right? Like take poetry, for example, 
right? There may be more, there may be poems out there written that are not under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that are more beautiful and or more, more well-written, so to speak, than the scriptures, uh, than the Psalms that we have in our Bibles, right? Uh, maybe they're more technically accurate than, uh, than that. Or you think about the accounts in the Bible. Maybe there's narratives that have been more well-written, right, than, than the scriptures. The Bible never comes out to say, like, that it's the best of any of these things, which actually is a call to hope for us. Because if, like, some of you may have grown up in the church, right, and, or even if you're just, uh, you know, still learning or trying to explore Jesus for the first time, there's a question of, like, how do we know, like, what we have in our hands? Like, how do we know that this is trustworthy? Like, what, like, how do we know that this is, in fact, God's words as opposed to some other claimed holy book, right? And Peter addresses that. These things are more fully confirmed. And he says this, as a lamp shining in a dark place. What I think is one of the most encouraging things about our faith, personally, is not that I have to agree with some like perfectly strong line of logic about, about the Bible and how it was written, right? I don't have to go and know all the historical dates about when something was written or who wrote what, right? No, I know and we know that this is God's word, not because it's the most proficient in how it's written, but because of the topics that it speaks about, the truth that it reveals to us. That inwardly we know that these words, these, the things that we hear, are in fact a word spoken to us that gives life, a light that shines in the darkness. So where do we look for those things? Where do we listen for them? Well, the this passage itself is a great, a great starting point. We look at uh, exactly what happens here, right? This scenario where Jesus is beginning this process of setting his face towards Jerusalem. You see, if you line up all of the world's philosophies, everything else that we can think of, right? If you line them all up, they all kind of say something pretty similar, right? How do I make myself better? How do I make myself more uh, how do I make myself more acceptable to my, my personal God of choice? But the Bible tells us something completely different. See, God wasn't waiting for us to ascend some heaven or some, some uh, mountaintop to visit him. He came down. Jesus, had he not set his face towards Jerusalem for this crucifixion, for our liberation, we'd have no hope it tells us something completely different that we wouldn't have uh, known otherwise, that we couldn't have crafted on our own. Jacob and I are actually talking this past week about, like, if you think about the Bible and so many of the stories in there, like, the people don't come away looking like the heroes in these stories, right? They, they in fact, come away looking a little bit silly, like, like Peter, right? You'd think that if you're crafting your own, your own world religion that you'd make yourself look a little bit better than, uh, than these men who would have supposedly crafted this. But these, these realities speak to us, and they encourage us. And so, as we think about the, these things, as we think about the very truths that we are reading here today, we read about Jesus' great exodus, which he invites us to, right? This freedom. Jesus' crucifixion led to our liberation, our freedom. And so we're invited into that, that great truth that Jesus died for us, that we bring nothing to the table other than uh, enjoying and receiving his good gift of love. 
Uh, we also recognize that the Bible is full of uh, mistakes made by people, that, uh, that Peter is an example of it, right? That we can learn from these things in our own discipleship. We can ask ourselves, how do we fit into this story? And how does it look, how will this look in our life? Uh, and then also we see that all of the other accounts through scripture are leading towards the same thing, the same uh, reality, that God so loved his people that nothing got in his way, that he was set. And we're going to see it more throughout these following chapters, that Jesus was set for our sake because he loved us. And so one of the things that I just, our last thought is that we are always listening to something, right? Or to someone. And maybe if you're a parent, you kind of see this on a regular basis, right? Like there's times where I'm like, my children act a certain way because they think that that's how they have to act to get what they want, Right? But, uh, and then there's this level of like, I'm imploring them, like, no, li listen to me. Like, don't listen to what you think is going to be better for you here. Listen to what I'm telling you. What I'm telling you will be better for you. If you're a parent, you know that kind of struggle. It's like, no, I'm telling you something that's good for you, right? We're always listening to something or someone. And so the question we ask ourselves is, you know, what does it look like to listen to Jesus? I have one quick application thought, something that I kind of started doing this week that uh, has been encouraging to me was I was feeling particularly busy, um, you know, with uh, just things going on in my life, work and life, um, just so much was going on. And uh, just kind of sensing that, I paused and thought to myself, like, what does the Bible say about this? And my mind was drawn to uh, Jesus's encouragement, like, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And so my application of something like this was, hey, like, I don't have to, like, read an entire book of the Bible this week, or I don't have to, you know, go through, but, like, I can start with this step of simply having that one phrase in my head that I can meditate on throughout the week and see how it applies to me. And so let's take a moment. I'm going to pray, and uh, we're going to ask God to help us have ears to, to hear him, to listen to him. So let's pray. God, we're, we are thankful for this story, and yeah, that God, your voice spoke from the cloud, from heaven itself, and it said something very simple. This is my chosen one. Listen to him. And so, God, we recognize that even that we need help with, and I pray, God, that you would give us uh, just the strength and the faith to be able to do that. It doesn't have to be leaps and bounds, God, but it can be simple, like just remembering uh, a favorite promise that you've given and taking that with us. And so, God, I pray that wherever we're at, that we would apply that and just pause and be still and quiet, and we would listen to you. Because as we've seen elsewhere in scriptures, where else can we go for the words of life? There is nowhere. And so, God, help us with these things, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.